the Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda. Welcome to Desert Island Discs. I'm Flavia Dumasime. This Sunday, I'm joined by a poet, would say a producer, and an author whose uh, best-selling debut novel memoir, Dear Philomena, told a powerful story. It was a dream of his for over a decade, and it actually came true. What stories have changed for now that he actually has songs for women to debuting as a mixtape? We get to know him, Mugabe Bienkia. You and I have sat down before. We have. To talk about your work. Dear Philomena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but this now is going to be a broader conversation just to mm-hmm. get to know you. Not even just for me, but for the audience, mm-hmm. uh, which cuts across. So I've always said, I, I struggle. Do I, do I define you as a poet, as an author, as mm-hmm. a, you know, a mm-hmm. producer, artist? And I'm like, mm-hmm. what is it? I mean, I would identify myself as a writer across mediums because I write okay. poetry. I write prose. I write comics. Mm. I write essays, I write songs, and so all of them are different forms of writing. Yeah. And so I just define myself writer. as a writer. Yeah. Right. Okay, so pick wherever in your childhood and let's start there to tell your story. When I was nine years old, I suffered my first stroke. And that shifted completely the way that my life would forever be. Exactly. At nine, you are cognizant of everything around you. You can understand things, yes. you can see things. Had you been unwell at all? No. So this just happened completely out a of the stroke, mm-hmm. and just for people to understand, a stroke would be you can't actually use your body at that. It was a gradual paralysis ah. of the right side of my body, right? And I used to be right-handed, and oh. so I had to change to become left-handed because of my stroke. Wait, when you say gradual, over time, over time, not yes. not in one day. No, because like the first day was like. Neurologists call it the worst migraine that anybody will ever experience in their life. Okay. They say that that's the first warning sign of a stroke. And uh, I've experienced that three times because I've had three strokes. Yeah. Uh, but the first day was that terrible migraine. And I had also aphasia, which is uh, when you are unable to uh, verbalize. Right, right, And right, so you think that you're speaking. But you're not. But you're not. And so like I thought that I was saying like it's Nadine's turn. But instead what was coming out of my mouth was... Whoa! Yeah, and and I and didn't. This is when you were still like at, at nine. Nine, yeah. Whoa! And so um, my brother. So this is you just playing with friends or with whatever. my brothers and friends, yeah. And then boom, this yeah. happened. Yeah, exactly. That and must have been scary even for them. It was very scary for for my parents more so mm. because they sheltered me from the actual fears that because the doctors told them that I wasn't going to make it to see my tenth birthday. And I didn't know this until like I became an adult and talked to my mother as an adult. But until that point, they didn't really know anything. No. So they went to the doctors first. Uh, the doctors misdiagnosed me as having dehydration. They didn't really know what was going on. And then the gradual part came in when I went back to school the next week. And I was always number one in handwriting. When we were doing a hand, our handwriting exercise, my hand wasn't moving in the ways that it normally would for some reason. Mm. And I didn't understand what going was going on. on. Yeah. Even my teacher was like, what's going on, Mugabe? Mm. You're always number one in handwriting. Like, how come today things changed? And I was like, I don't know. And then when I went back home, my mother was like, why is your hand like that? Because mm. my hand was like curled up. In, right. a, in like a, you know, like uh, in the position that which eventually didn't happen at that point when you were playing with friends. No, that, no, no, no. Okay, that was that was I, the I weekend, and gradual. then yeah, and then and the, yes, the next mm. week my hand became slowly curled up, and so 
And also I was walking with a limp, which I normally don't do don't, oh, wow. uh, or didn't do at the time. And so my mother was like, we need a second opinion yes. because this dehydration thing like would not explain. But imagine that, what's saying all that is dehydration. <laughs> but I've been yes, misdiagnosed by a doctor from Dr. Martin. Doctors are so arrogant and confident that they know everything mm. when it's like, just accept that you don't know and like try and figure it out <laughs> exactly yes and so it was very gradual the, the, the paralysis is gradual like i remember it taking like wow. a couple of weeks to become fully paralyzed mm. the right side of my body not the left and so then i had to learn how to, to do switch. things with my left exactly and how to write with my left how to eat how to brush my teeth wow. all these things that we take for granted but I had to relearn how to do them all over again. So you say your parents sheltered you from what it really was. Yes. But it was you going through it. Are you thinking anything at that point? I was very angry because I was like, why me? All these doctors kept on telling me that strokes don't happen in children. The strokes mm. happen in people who are 65 plus, who have been smoking for all these years. And it's and like... here you are 9, 10, <laughs> just what would have caused it, you know? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so I have none of the risk factors. And so I was very angry at how unfair life was. And I was very angry at my situation. But at the same time, I never thought that I was going to die from it. Okay. And so that's something that my parents sheltered me from. Mm. The fact that I can do this and fully extend my right hand is thanks to nine years of intensive physical Whoa. therapy. That must not just shift you, but shift everyone around you. Definitely. <laughs> and, and, and I say shift because then it's almost like they have to figure out how to work with you, how to be with you. Was it good, bad, easier? One thing that I really appreciate about my immediate family mm. is that they always stressed that Mugabe, now because of your stroke, you have to modify and have to change the way that you approach things. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you are now like excluded from the family responsibilities. Right. Like I still had to do the dishes. <laughs> I did them in a different way, you know. True African home. But, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and like, I really appreciated that because... Mm. A lot of other families who have disabled children completely isolate them, yes. you know? They're and different to them, to the families. Like, no, you're different. You'll do different things. Exactly, exactly. Mm, it's but a good lesson if you're listening. And also my siblings, especially my older siblings, they really stuck up for me in regards to bullies. Mm. Uh, because there was a lot of bullying because I was different. And anytime... So young, young people don't know how to no, take different. Not at all. Not <laughs> at don't. all. Young people are terrible. <laughs> but anytime anybody bullied me... My siblings would come, they'd mm. talk to them, and I'd never get bullied again. Wow. I, I want your siblings. <laughs> <laughs> I want them. Uh, that's So what was your relationship like with your parents? Even if they treated you, well, quote-unquote, the same. Mm -hmm. um, let's just say without this incident. I mean, just that kind of family. What kind of you know parents did you have? Would you look back now? I had a great set of parents. Um, mm. My father passed in 2005, oh, so he's no longer with us. The parents that I had is very different from the parents that my older siblings had. Ah, you found the good ones. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they already finished all their... Eh? It was more so that um, they had been exposed to other cultures mm. because my father got a job with the UNDP. And he was used to work for the Bank of Uganda. Mm -hmm. And then he, my mother encouraged him to apply for the UNDP position. Yeah. And when he went into the interview, he saw his boss at the Bank of Uganda was interviewing for the same position. <laughs> and his boss, his boss looked at him and said, you're fired. 
Yeah, obviously. And so my dad was like, I have to ace this interview otherwise. <laughs> I have a job to <laughs> exactly. go to. Exactly. And yeah. my dad ended up beating out his boss and Oops. got the job. So he was working in UNDP Uganda for a while. And then they transferred him to UNDP Nigeria, mm-hmm. which is when I was born. Wow. And that experience of being exposed to a completely different culture, that changed my parents. And it changed their perspective on parenting. Mm-hmm. And so my parents, they both took parenting classes. Which in 1992 is revolutionary, you know? (laughs) Um, And they both tried to both become better parents because they'd been exposed to Mm. a different culture and a different style of parenting. And also the school that we went to, um, there were people from all across the world and it was like, you know, like very diverse. And so they were being exposed to so much. And so they were like, we need to be better parents because the way we are parenting right now is not like as effective as the way some of these other parents are parenting. Wow. And so I came in when... You got the cream, exactly. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky me, you. Me and, me and my little sibling, we, we, we got the benefits. Oh, uh, wow. The, the older ones, they experienced the, the, the rough like, times. Uh-uh. Uh, uh, <laughs> so when you describe your parents, they're like, who's that? <laughs> uh, but like my parents shifted for them too, you oh, know? Of course, of and, course. And so like, it, it was like for the first couple of years, like like um, things were different. But then once I came into the picture, like things completely changed. Shifted. Um, mm. And so, like, they're grateful for those, for that shift as well. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's your first song choice? So, my first song choice is Bad Connection by Jaden Smith. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what I expected your song choices to be, but <laughs> by the end, we'll see. <laughs> you are not expecting Jaden Smith? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's fine, though. Uh, I, like I said, by the end of the show, I will see how many shocks I have received. Okay. Sounds good. Go breaking up, breaking up, breaking up. What a metaphor, metaphor, metaphor. Trying to save us, wait up, I don't want to say too much. It's what the bet is for, you get it, you're incredible, my God. Thought you were an angel, call him gullible. Huddle in the winter, a lot of sailing in the summer Scared to tell you I'm in love with you Rubber banding, throwing hundreds for you Get it if you want it, girl, I hope you feeling comfortable I gotta switch it up, we're flying Fuck about these other fools, gotta switch, switch Change the angle, I know you a cute And a rainbow tug Every night we yell at Avenue, I gotta switch it up Time after time in my mind Run around the corner and if you are far Oh girl, goddamn, you look fine What a nigga gonna make you mine Girl, we're breaking up, breaking up, breaking up What a metaphor, metaphor, metaphor Tryna save a sweat up, I don't wanna say too much That's what the bet is for, you get it, you're incredible, my God Why you gotta lock on why? Send a boy daddy, I'm right Say no party, got this every night I just hit it like the flip of vibe I just take a sip, I feel alive I've been on a trip, she wanna try now Baby girl, you got me in the time Cause you always running on Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda. Desert Island Discs, I have Mugabe Bienkia. Everybody has to try and say it right, <laughs> including me. We just listened to Bad Connection, 
Jaden Smith as your first song choice. Sometimes my guests actually shock me by their choices. <laughs> so you might be one of them. And when we had a conversation back in 2018 with mm-hmm. when you were releasing Dear Philomena, you had such a, a rich story, you mm. know, and rich experiences. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't sound like your life stopped. Even if they're bullies, you know, how does school go at that point for mm-hmm. you? What your experiences then form as? Do you then take away the anger that you had and mm-hmm. then do you now start to say what can I get out of life mm. well the anger honestly remained okay <laughs> but honest <laughs> I believe that anger is like a valid emotion like okay. I was in therapy in 2015 2016 and my therapist taught me that um, anger is valid and anger deserves to be okay. expressed the anger stayed academically in school I always did very very well in school mm. school was like because like sports is a very 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 central part of boyhood you know, like, you yeah. Come to think of it, yeah. yes. Um, and I wasn't able to engage. I was completely banned from any rigorous physical activity for like a year and a half after my stroke. I could only do physical therapy. I wasn't allowed to play sports. I wasn't allowed to do any physical education. And like during like, you know, break time when everybody's playing on the football field, I'd just be in the library reading. Oh, wow. A lot of people like, you know, like viewed me as like, you're not really a boy because... Your boys should be doing this exactly. and you're not. Oh, exactly, no. exactly. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so the library then became your thing. Did you already know at that point, okay, maybe I'll try and become this kind of person. I'll gravitate towards this or... Were you just oh, yes, so yes. Oh, I, knew from, I, knew, I knew from before the stroke, from very, very late. From, really? from From when I first discovered reading and I discovered that like there's a job where people can like <laughs> <laughs> actually like uh, like create all these wonderful world, worlds that I loved. Books, like yeah. I was like, you know, like this is what I want to do. Wow. Yeah. Do you remember the first books you were exposed to? It was a lot of children's books. And so, mm. like, you know, like what I could handle at the time, because mm. like I was like four years old, The Hungry Hungry Caterpillar, a lot of the Kato Nenaku, yeah. um, a lot of Peter and Jane. I, I, uh, I think I told you last time when we met that our generation was not exposed to reading too much. So mm-hmm. anybody who said, I grew up reading, you're like, mm, mm-hmm. what was wrong with you? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because we're like, why Why are you reading? But I mean, just to know from someone who enjoyed it mm-hmm. to a point where they're like, I, this is something I want to do. Was it the, the, the words that would take you away? Was it the painting of, of a world with words? What pulled you in? It was an escape, you know? Like, mm. And especially after my stroke, when like I was struggling with my physical disabilities, like, all these worlds that I was able to be transported through, whether it be comics or books, it was able to give me an escape mm-hmm. and a way that I could like fall into these worlds and like escape from everything that I was right. dealing with every day. And I come from a family of readers. And so like that was like very much fostered within us. Like mm-hmm. my father, my mother, all my siblings, they were all readers. Like they were all every Sunday curled up on the couch reading. And like for me, like that's why like I initially started reading was because they were like, I told them I want to play. They said, no, we're busy reading. <laughs> and I was like, what's this reading thing that I can be yeah. better than playing? And I found That's out that it was better it. than playing. Yeah. Wow. Did you grow up here in Uganda? No, I didn't. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where, where did you, for the most part? So I was born in Nigeria. The way my father's job with the NDP worked was every three or four years, they moved us He'd to a different country. Else. So when I was three, we moved to Sudan, where my little sibling was born. When I was six, we moved to Bangladesh. Uh, That's where the stroke happened. Uh, When I was nine, we moved to Cambodia, which is actually a great place to be uh, after the stroke because of the Khmer Rouge, which was the genocide uh, in Cambodia. Cambodia has a lot of disabled people. 
And so there were a lot of people who look like me on the streets. And there was like a great infrastructure in place for physical therapy and for rehabilitation. Like I had some of my, my best physical therapists in Cambodia because the infrastructure was in place because of the genocide. Wow. Uh, so I was in Cambodia for four years, then moved to Thailand for a couple of months. When my father fell sick, he was sick for like nine months when we were in Cambodia. And then he started getting a little better. So then they said they were going to move him to the hospital in Thailand. And then he was going to work out of UNDP Thailand. And unfortunately, what happened with him was what happened to a lot of people who pass away is they, they get better and then they pass, you know, like mm. uh, there's like that little uptick so that I feel like it's like so that they can say goodbye and then he passed away in Thailand and so then my mother was like um there's like you know like she, she had no work permit she didn't have anything to do in Thailand so she was like let's move back home home was like a place that I never lived in yeah. you know but my parents made sure to make sure that we had a connection to Uganda to, to Uganda because uh, the UNDP had amazing benefits and like uh, that's one of the reasons that my mom encouraged my father for the job because she saw that she was a nurse at the time and she saw that all the UNDP people didn't pay anything because the health insurance covered mm. everything. And so okay. she saw that like, Smart exactly. <laughs> and like till today, like I'm still covered by the UNDP Whoa. health insurance and I'm 31. Smart woman. Yeah. As long as I prove that I'm disabled, um, every five years, like I continue to be covered by the UNDP Whoa. health insurance. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. And so <laughs> shout out to my mom for that one. Yeah, please. Um, Good decision. Best decision. If you think about it, you didn't really have the one place that was home home you were moving to different and creating home or that feeling of home or whatever that is in the different places but that also means you can get exposed to a lot of things and your passions can also grow in a certain way you're because you're exposed to all these things what did that do for you and that dream that you were saying that you had which is writing so home for me has always been not so much a place mm -hmm. and more so family Right. Uh, like my immediate family, whenever I'm around any of them, I feel at home. Right. Because they were the constant. Despite all the moves, they were the constant. Well, these people. Uh, yeah. And our home is also like different places that were like constant. Like church feels like home to me. Because no matter where we were in the world, you we always to to went church, to church. Yeah? <laughs> and church is the same everywhere in the world. Like okay. the same thing with libraries. Libraries mm. feel like home for me, you know? Mm. Same thing with airports. Because I was, we we're always traveling. My conception of home is not so much a place as it is like, like buildings or, yeah. and like people. An experience, a yeah. feeling. Yeah, yeah, people. yeah. Interesting. And, and so then when did you, because there's one thing to say, I'm a young person who's in the library a lot. I, I read and I love it. When do you start acting upon the dream? Oh, I acted upon the dream since I was like four you years were old. Writing yeah, yeah. Oh, I was writing. I was writing. I was writing comics. Kind of story. Okay. I was writing short stories. Mm -hmm. I was writing poems. I was. I, I, I've been writing, not publicly sharing. I was it about the world. to say creatives are sensitive about their work. <laughs> Don't let anyone read. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I kept it to myself, and yeah. I didn't share it with anybody. Oh, the on. first time I publicly shared my writing was when I think I was nineteen. Whoa. Yeah. Other Wh than why? That, why? at that point why did you feel it's okay that was because um i started rapping and a friend of mine is a singer mm -hmm. and so we like decided to collaborate together right and i felt more comfortable being more public facing with the rapping than <laughs> okay. i did with the writing because i would write for the page secretly I'd write like poems. Well, you had, like, and a, I had a, a secret blog. Oh, like, come on. Where like I didn't <laughs> share it with anybody. Yeah. And like it was like completely like 
to myself just to put my stuff out there and whoever stumbled across it on the internet stumbled across not it no it's you but not no it's me yeah because yeah. my alias was they said I should talk more <laughs> <laughs> your blog was called they said I should talk more exactly oh dear <laughs> because that's something that I've that I've heard all the time throughout ah. my childhood which like is ironic now that like I'm like you know like doing press and like yeah. you know like in a public facing career because like now I'm always talking uh, but like I was very very shy as a child um, the confidence really didn't come in until university Aish. yeah what did you do at university environmental sciences <laughs> uh-uh. your choice my choice actually oh. yeah, yeah 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 like I was pushed into the sciences but I also loved the sciences at the okay. same time and like it's something that like especially environmental justice is work that I would like to return to mm-hmm. the only problem was like when I had my two I had two more strokes in 2014 mm-hmm. and those left me with a bunch of more disabilities chronic pain chronic fatigue a seizure disorder and that rendered that work inaccessible to me mm-hmm. And so the writing was accessible because I could do it on my own time and my own schedule yeah. and you know like make my own hours. I have plans on starting a foundation that's going to do environmental justice work in the Wakiso and the Hoima region, carbon sink work, indigenous reforestation work. Those are like my like dreams in terms of like environmental justice work, but okay. that will be like me like you know, doing it on my own rather than working for a company for because yeah. like I can't do the 9 to 5. Mm. Yeah. So you'll still stay in what you can do and can control in exactly. your own time but then also still fulfill that part of your passion that you want to do. Exactly. Environmental science. Mhm. Shoka. <laughs> What's your <laughs> second song choice? My second song choice is Pearls by Shade. Hmm. I could see that. That's not a shoka. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah. There is a woman in Somalia. Scraping for pearls on the roadside There's a force stronger than nature Keeps her will alive This is how she's dying She's dying to survive I don't know what she's made of I would like to be that great She cries to the Shadow 
For Uganda. Desert Island Discs, Mugabe Vientia, who actually studied environmental science but is now a writer or in the arts or in creatives. And I mean, I, do, I know a friend who did broadcasting but studied um, to be a vet. Oh, wow. And it was always like, what, are you okay? He's like, oh, you know, on the weekend I'll take care of like a sick puppy. <laughs> <laughs> on Monday I'll be on radio. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, interesting. <laughs> um, and, and, and so that's what you studied at university, but then is writing a job for you? Sort of is. Uh-huh. Like the income is not the most reliable. It comes and goes. Mm. I spend... Just to make people understand how you would earn, what, what that is, how do you earn as a writer? Through sales of my book, yeah, which like dry up if because like because you know you can't write a book every month. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so like the sales of my book like were like at their peak when I was on tour. Yes, and uh, so I went to the U.S., Canada, uh, Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda, and I was performing and I was getting paid to perform, right? Uh, which is another source of income. And I was also selling books and merchandise, so T-shirts, posters, and making income that way. And the other way of income is through writing for publications that pay. Ah. And so, for example, like I can write, say, an essay for Skin Deep in 2020, mm. and they paid me a certain amount of money for right, that essay. Right, or I write right. a poem for this other publication, and they pay me a certain amount of money for that. Outside of like, and then like my mixtape that I just released, like people buy it, and the label pays me 50% of everything that they make from oh. it, you know? I have like my mixtape launch coming up, which hoping to push on March 18th. Mm-hmm. So everybody listening, come through. Mm-hmm. It's going to be at the Gotha Zentrum starting at 5.30. Tickets are available at either the Gotha Zentrum or contacting me directly. Mm-hmm. And also, like, if I, like, win, like, an award, Spend they come with exactly, yeah, a stipend. If it's someone who's doing radio in this country and did TV, mm-hmm. at the time that I started to do it, all my friends were like, that's so cool. Mm-hmm. My age mates mm-hmm. and their parents mm-hmm. would be like, is she okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's surely she can go to school and uh, try her hand at anything else mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because the, the the arts the creatives were just seen as why are you wasting your time you yes. could do something could really pay you and really support you mm-hmm. but then I also am raised by a single mother who said no by all means if mm-hmm. you're great at it if it's a talent mm-hmm, do it mm-hmm. I'll support you where I can mm-hmm. did you have the same support that was also like a creative in different ways like that was okay. an actor mm. he was an amazing storyteller i loved listening to music yeah. but my mom she was the one who pushed me into the sciences right okay because she saw that i had the passion and the love for it and i was good at it mm-hmm. and all of my other siblings every single one of them had pretty much majored in international development or global international mm-hmm. studies because they were all looking to do sort of similar work as what my dad did right, right. because like i was like her second last hope because uh, i was fourth <laughs> out of five she was like i was a nurse like please like do something Someone related do sciences, to the please. sciences exactly and so i was like and I had the passion for it and I had the love for it so I was like okay let me do environmental sciences when things shifted after my strokes she was always supportive of my decisions to be in the creative arts and to be a writer and I think a large part of her support was because she realized that a lot of the work in the sciences was now inaccessible to me 
and she saw mm-hmm. that I was trying to do what I could right. um, within my means. Mm-hmm. And she recognized that and she appreciated that because we also have a lot of family who don't do anything, you know? And what also helped was when I came off of tour, after my second leg of tour, her phone was um, broken. And she was like, oh, I need a new phone, but I don't have the money. And I was like, oh, I can buy you a new phone. Okay. And she was like, she was like, you made enough money off of tour that you can buy me a new phone? And I was like, yeah. And then she was like, oh. And and, and that granted did some legitimacy. Wonderful. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, mom. (laughs) We're judging. What was your first, um, I don't even want to call it a big break, but major work? The one where the world got to see and the world got to celebrate. But my first major work was a parody song called uh, Why I Gotta Wait that I made uh, with my friend uh, Brenton in university. It was during one of our breaks and both of us were bored and both of us (laughs) liked to make music. And so we were like, there was this competition by this rapper that I really loved called Flint Flossie, who's like a parody rapper. He put out a competition where he said, everybody listening to this should put out their own versions of like what you think uh, the song is going to be mm-hmm. and make a music video for it and we'll like repost it on our YouTube channel mm-hmm. and we were actually we, we won the competition we, we, oh. we had the most views yeah it started like meeting like recognized on campus mm-hmm. or like being like recognized you know on the street as That's like the guy who did this exactly exactly <laughs> um, and so like it, it, it was strange um, because uh, like I don't like the spotlight mm-hmm. um, um, I would rather just be in the corner, um, you know, like doing my thing. Someone but says there's no celebrity who ever says, oh, come on, I I, I love when people like me. <laughs> I love when people to ask me for pictures. <laughs> they will say, I don't like it. <laughs> no one uh, ever says, that's, that's nice. Uh, it's not a bad thing that people like me. <laughs> so, okay, I, that's the, so that's your first, well, where people actually recognized you from doing your work. Exactly. Um, when, when we met for Dear Philomena, the mm-hmm. book, um, was there anything before that? No, it was just like individual poems and yeah. like just like like short little pieces. Uh, no full length project before yeah, that. Okay, yeah. so we'll be back to hear about you know what Dear Philomena that I've been <laughs> saying is all about. But what's your um, next song choice? My next song choice is Know It by Coco Owino.
Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda. It's Desert Island Discs. And um, when I first met Mugabe Bienkia, somebody I'd introduce because I was looking for Ugandan writers, poets, or you know, creatives in that world of writing. And at the time, I was on TV, and people were saying, "But why? Why are you looking for writers? Nobody wants to hear their story. It's not fun. It's not nice." And I said, "No, but I care because that's that's deep work. Because writing, I mean, I can come here and just you know, get into a microphone, switch on, and just speak. But writing, you have to go somewhere to mm-hmm. become a writer. And I said, "I mean, I'd clearly failed. Everybody expects journalists to know how to." be good writers mm-hmm. it's not that it's not that obvious mm-hmm. but you were you had put out dear philomena mm-hmm. and uh, maybe just briefly tell my listeners who probably have never seen this work what it's all about dear philomena is i like to call it the story of two strokes one girl one boy and a whole lot of magical realism mm-hmm. uh, because <laughs> it begins when i was in my mother's womb so my mother had had one girl and two boys at this point mm. and she wanted her fourth to be a girl and she wanted to finish uh, uh, right yeah uh, she wanted four children and this was her dream from childhood four children two boys two girls done and in that order girl boy boy girl ah and so so you were meant to be a girl exactly in her mind this is a girl uh, and even at the ultrasound they said you're expecting a baby girl whoa and so she was happy she was excited mm-hmm. and so she picked up the name Philomena for mm. her baby girl when she gave birth to me the doctor <laughs> said congratulations he's he. a boy exactly <laughs> and my mother was so shocked that like she couldn't even like on my, my birth certificate literally reads baby bienkia because she, she's like I'll figure this out <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's like I, I was expecting Philomena so mm-hmm. we'll figure this out later mm-hmm. on oh wow and she also had all those you know pink dresses and frilly bonnets oh. and everything from the baby shower so for the first couple months of my life I was dressed up as a girl I was you know <laughs> in pink mm-hmm. and she's always told me that story of Philomena is who you are supposed to be right and so I decided for the book to start writing mm. these series of conversations between myself Mugabe and Philomena the could woman have. who I was supposed to be who could have been, who yeah. Could have been yeah and it's tells the story of a year of my life from December 2014 when I suffered the two strokes yeah. uh, to December 2015 um, a year after those two strokes and mm-hmm. tells just the story of me navigating all the medical racism all the healthcare struggles all the chronic pain uh, suicidal ideation and all the struggles that I went through it's told through like a text messaging format so it's like me texting with Philomena as well as like social media posts and diary entries which was an accessible form of writing for me personally because mm-hmm. of my disabilities at the time I couldn't write anything that was like a more like conventional uh, novel at the time um, but it also made it accessible to disabled readers and to neurodivergent readers I have people who tell me that like my book is the first book that they've been able to read in years because other books don't think with accessibility in mind you know mm. that's the book in a nutshell and the book is also like a thought exploration of like how different would my life have been and how different would society have treated me if i was born as a girl you know the s- social construction of gender is that like girls are raised and shaped very differently than boys yes. are you know yes. and how differently would society have treated me and how differently would my life have been like if i was able bodied throughout my entire life right. if i hadn't become disabled when i was 9 years mm. old and also if i was muslim because like mm. half my family is muslim and i could have easily been born on the muslim side you know mm. but instead i was born on the catholic side okay. and that's a complete different you know perspective and so i wanted to explore those 
different al- alternate sort of realities of like what would my what my life have been. Mm. And how did Dear Philomena the book do? It did <laughs> incredibly well. A <laughs> lot lot better than I expected. I was expecting like cuz uh I published it through this tiny little little um Canadian publisher called Discovering Diversity Publishing because mm-hmm. I was in Canada at the time. They no longer exist because mm. they were one of the casualties of the pandemic. They folded, oh, no. but they did a great job with my book because they gave me the rights to the book, and so mm. I own everything. Wow! Uh, but That's that good. meant that I had to uh, promote fundraise and push to actually like print out the copies because they weren't covering that. Oh wow! And so I did a Kickstarter campaign. which raised like over $4,000 cuz I have incredibly generous uh, friends and family then I was able to like reinvest going forward and so like initially I was like thinking of selling like 100 200 books but I was sold over 1,400 I'm a Ugandan bestseller established myself as a writer and have a bunch of like accolades and awards to my name things that I didn't even think would be <laughs> possible cuz I had incredibly realistic expectations but mm-hmm. it just took a life of it of its own one thing that I really, really really appreciate about Dear Philomena is the fact that it is both popular and resonating and read in East Africa and North America because I never wanted to be one of those African writers who is popular in the West but is not read at home. At home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But like I've had people who here at home have messaged me and said that they read Dear Philomena back to back 10 times. Nice. Because they needed it. Wow. Wow. And and because you've been well as you would call it back home mm-hmm. for some time i don't remember if we had that conversation back then but 9 years to now it's been a while mm-hmm. you've probably with your movements from different countries and and ex- being exposed to different things also received how people view disability yes in different places mm-hmm. and, and 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 i don't know if it's been any different coming back home yeah, or it's the same back home there's the witchcraft connotation oh, that wow. is not there in <laughs> see uh, that coming <laughs> <laughs> what uh, because like disability and witchcraft yeah 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 yeah, mm. yeah, 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 yeah. like a lot of my family think i'm cursed <sighs> and they think that you know like uh, witchcraft has been done on me and mm. that's so the someone cause didn't of, like uh, you or uh, your parents exactly exactly yeah <laughs> and so the witchcraft connotation is something that i feel is more unique to I'd, I'd say the global south just generally honestly it's definitely a very very strong disability connotation and relation that I experience wow. uh, here compared to other places <laughs> I didn't see that coming and I find that even if it's not a disability right mm-hmm. let's say it's it's like um so and so's dad um did great things mm-hmm. and the child comes up with a great you know piece of work or talent mm-hmm. they really don't want to live in the shadow of their parent mm-hmm. or whatever it is that they do like Jaden Smith uh, Jaden Smith <laughs> indeed like I have my own life I I can do my own things mm-hmm. do you find that th- th- there's there's more of a need for you to tell a story around the disability or do you find that like I'd rather just define Mugabe a different way <laughs> without this I honestly enjoy writing about my disabilities really? because for so long I was actually just working on a application for a fellowship yeah. um before this and like for so long I was in the closet about being disabled like I like didn't like talking about it let's talk about I, anything else exactly from, mm. exactly like I remember uh one time I was talking to one of my friends in university 
and he faced with questions of like what's wrong with your hand you know because okay. my hand you know was like spastic and like or like why do you walk with a limp and then I told them oh, I had a stroke and I was 9 years old friend was like oh my god that's such an amazing story we should have you in the school paper hmm. and so he set me up for an interview with the school paper which I didn't want to do but I didn't know how to back out of because <laughs> I was like I was, I was I was like how do I say no to this because like he's already got the ball moving and so then I got to, to the interview and I was terrified because I was like oh, I'm about to out myself to the whole school and so I ended up like being like hey like do you mind if we talk about something else instead and then she was like do you have something more interesting than the stroke <laughs> oh wow and I was like like this is something that I don't like talking about as well mm-hmm. but like because it wasn't the stroke mm-hmm. I it was like I have to do this and so I said uh, I'm the leader of my clan and so she said what <laughs> and so she was like that's fascinating and so we did a whole interview about how like when my dad passed he left me as, as yes. leader of the clan Omsika. exactly yeah. Yeah. i was so scared of being open about my disabilities for so long after my two strokes when i like found like disability community found like other disabled writers other disabled artists other disabled musicians I leaned into the vulnerability because mm. I found strength through that and I found liberation through that and so like I'm proud to be disabled so it changed you now yeah. said no I will tell the story proudly exactly I, I like that I like that shift and also for somebody who's listening who might be where you were before mm-hmm. uh, listening to that saying that there happens to be a shift where you use the story for good and for growth and going forward mm-hmm. versus it holding you back mm-hmm. um, because then if you're defining it that way chances are we're all going to define it mm-hmm. that way mm-hmm. <laughs> you're scared we're scared after dear philomena was there any other writing after dear philomena i had a bunch of like poems and essays yes. and comics and stuff uh, published in a bunch of different publications but in terms of like a full length mm-hmm. project i got a lot of people asking me for a dear philomena 2 Would you even consider that? I'm not in the same form as the first, okay. you know. Uh because a lot of people what they wanted from a dear philomena 2 um and they explicitly told me this is they wanted the story of how I got better. Mm. And I'm like, but I never got better. I'm still Ooh. disabled, you know? Like okay. and like that means that the like message of the book completely flew over your head because <laughs> the point of the whole book is we that we read it but we got the wrong message. <laughs> exactly, because oh, like dear. they see me, you know, and, and like now I'm out and about, you know, mm-hmm. like I can hop on a boat, I can like, you know. And so, go, so how go, did you get better when you think Exactly, when I'm like I'm still in pain, like I'm in pain right now. Mm-hmm. I still have fatigue every single day. I still, you know, have photophobia, hyperacusis, you know. Um, my mm-hmm. seizure disorder, like I'm still managing those things. So you don't you don't have the story they're looking for exactly mm, yeah, um that's, that's really what it is and so it took me a, a while to, to to get to a follow-up for dear philomena honestly also because unfortunately in 2020 my health worsened significantly because i was working on the follow-up like sporadically mm. since 2018 mm. but now i have the follow-up the mixtape Yes. Uh, so the mixtape <laughs> is the follow-up to Dear Philomena. And it actually works as a sequel. So like mm-hmm. a lot of people like who've read Dear Philomena and then listen to the mixtape they like, you know, like see where it connects because like I have these the narrative bridge on the mixtape called Philomena's voicemails where I leave voicemails to Philomena about oh, what my life is and what like is going through and like how things have changed since the days of Dear Philomena, you know, sort of updating her on what things are currently. What's your fourth song choice? My fourth song choice is Gold by Dream Koala.
Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda. It's Desert Island Discs and we have the writer, Mugabe. I wanted to ask if you sometimes feel isolated or feel, I think lonely was, was the word I would have used in English, just mm-hmm. so heavy. Mm-hmm. But we'll use it anyway, mm. if you understand. Do you sometimes feel that way? Lonely, I'd say not so much because I'm constantly surrounded by people because I live with my mother and there are a lot of people in the house. Isolated, yes. Because it's difficult to find people who can relate to my direct uh, lived experience. For example, I got COVID in October for the first time ever. was not like regular COVID for me because I have a bunch of pre-existing yeah. disabilities and so it just exacerbated everything so I was having seizures every day I was in a lot of pain I was in hell having like intense fatigue I like mm-hmm. walked to the bathroom and that was it any longer and like I'd go and break out into a seizure and so I was largely better than for two months while I was recovering from COVID and then like in December I was feeling like more energy and so I was like okay let me try to get back into my physical therapy mm-hmm. I went on a nine-minute walk and I had a four-hour seizure as a result of that. Things like that make me feel relatively isolated in that, like, it's hard to find community who can understand. But, Mm -hmm. like, at the same time, I do have disabled friends, strong disability community um, on Twitter. There is people who, like, that I can go to, yeah. So over the years, are we able to not necessarily define, but dis- describe what it is that happened to you? Because you said there was a lot of misdiagnosis from very many doctors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is there the is there a one thing that they say happened? They say that one of the blood vessels on the left side of my brain does a loop when it's supposed to be straight. Okay, and it's a lot thinner than the rest are, but they're not sure whether that is the cause of the stroke oh. or whether that was caused by the stroke ah. or whether that was there all along and has nothing to do with the stroke. The two other strokes that happened and the chronic pain and the seizures and the mm. feet fatigue, that one they can't explain at all. They said that maybe in 50 years with the research they're uh, doing, sorry, they might what? have answers for me. Yeah, 50 five years. Zero. Yeah, five zero. It must be hard. Are you the kind of person who stopped seeking answers and just... Adapted. I was seeking answers for like a year. I was seeking answers heavily, especially because a lot of the doctors who I saw, once they realized that they couldn't figure me out, Mm -hmm. they tell me it's all in your head. You're crazy. Go see a psychologist. Come on. I went to the psychologist to prove them wrong, but the psychologist actually helped me. Like unthink the way you feel. Exactly. Everything will change. Exactly. Wow. I had one neurologist tell me. Because he was both a neurologist and a psychiatrist. And, and so he was like, I've reviewed all your medical documents because uh, they said it's a psychological issue. We'll approach this from a psychological setting. Okay. And so I was talking to him about my life and everything's going on. And he's, he was a white man. He said, you seem to be very angry about racism. <laughs> Uh, and this is like in the midst of I'm like sorry, the Black Lives laugh. Matter protests, you yeah, know, like in so the states, like when like because I was in the states for like six and uh, something years because mm-hmm. uh, I got a full tuition scholarship for my undergraduate studies, and then after that I got a fellowship for my masters, and then I was mm-hmm. in recovery with my sister, um, and I like had several racist run-ins with the police where like I was slammed against you know a police car right. and like Being could have black. easily died for mm. just walking down the street yeah. you know when and I see interprets that you're angry because of these situations exactly and, and wh- because of that 
that's why you're in this? Exactly. Oh, wow. He said, try being less angry about racism and your pain will go away. He said this directly to me. He said this directly to me. And immediately I was like, you're fired like I'm not I'm, 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 I'm not coming to see you again and so I found a black therapist <laughs> did he understand you um, he helped me unpack a lot of things that I was struggling with mentally because when you're in pain 24-7 like mm. you're depressed you know like it's impossible to not Just struggle okay with your mental with health yeah. yeah and so he helped me with my depression he helped me with meditation with mindfulness and he also understood the African perspective which I okay. helped because he was married to a Zambian woman ah. and he like lived in like Ghana and Zambia for like decades one of the first questions he asked me is like do your family think this is witchcraft and I was like <laughs> you're like finally someone exactly <laughs> I really really rest in peace Dr. Phillips he passed unfortunately in 2019 yes. uh, he was amazing that proved to me that it wasn't psychological and then I went to another clinic where they said it's not all in your head it is physiological we just don't have the... We can't figure what it is, but y- yeah, it's, it y- is. Y- y- yeah, and like science is not advanced enough yet to, to be able out. to figure... They said, wow. we're doing research in this exact condition, but we might have answers for you 50 years from now. <sighs> so you just have to figure out how best to manage for now. True. And so you that's what ha- I've been doing. You have a mixtape. The mixtape launches in March. The launch, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the title? of Songs for Women 2. <laughs> for women <laughs> uh, so actually it's W-O bra- brackets men and men yeah so it's including both women and men and also people who are beyond the gender binary people mm. who are trans people yes. who are genderqueer etc you're rapping on this so this it's more word? so like it, it bleeds the lines between poetry and hip hop you know okay. in the vein of like the Watts Prophets The Last Poets Gil Scott Heron Song for Luna and Song for Achol those are songs you know mm. But like the Western publishers, they were like, what, what do you mean song? This is a poem, <laughs> you know? Blowing. What's that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And like I'm trying to like reject those labels of like, mm. what is a song, you know? It's poetry, it's hip hop, it's mm. rapping. It's a mix of everything, but it speaks to, I really wanted to celebrate platonic love okay. and platonic intimacy on this mm. um, mixtape because I have a lot of, and also familial love and familial intimacy because I have a lot of friends and family who've really, really like been there for me in surprising ways. Like some people who like, you know, when I was going through it in like 2015, like my friend Laura messaged her and I was like, hey, how's it going? And I was just looking for people to talk to because like I was depressed and I was struggling. And Laura was really, really there for me. We've become like really, really close ever since then. And we weren't as close during university. Okay. She showed me that like there is like capacity for people to actually be there deeply for you deeply. Be yeah. Because a lot of people, when I wanted to talk about what I was going through, they'd be like, did you watch the Arsenal game? Okay, divert to something else. Exactly. And so I really, really wanted to celebrate the platonic love and the friendship that I have with several individuals in my life. It also speaks to my disabilities, faith healers, grief, just like navigating being a disabled body in a world that is built for able-bodied people. Yes. <laughs> what a way to give us a statement. And and where can people find your work as we wrap? So people can find my work at my website, mugabibienkia.com. That's M-U-G-A-B-I-B-Y-E-N-K-Y-A.com. There's a link to buy the mixtape or to oh. buy my book okay. um, on the website. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Mugabs, that's M-U-G-A-B-S. Follow me on Twitter at MugabsB, that's M-U-G-A-B-S-B. Or follow me on Facebook, Facebook? Uh, at B M-U-G-A-B-S-B as well. Or um, what's it called? Um, YouTube. 
uh, YouTube Mugabe Binkia. Okay. And uh, I just started a TikTok as well, which oh, is also yeah, yeah. Mugabe's. <laughs> Where the well. cool people hang. Exactly. <laughs> and the link is in my bio for everything. What's your final song choice as we wrap? My Fifth, final yeah. song choice as we wrap is Something About Us by Daft Punk. There were not that many surprises of your song choice. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the, the Jaden is one that took me out, but yes. Why, why weren't you surprised by the ones that I don't you weren't think surprised by? I, I really I don't think I know anyone who just randomly wants to listen to Jaden Smith. I'm a Jaden Smith stan. Really? Like, uh, the last line of my artist bio yeah. says Mugabe Vinka wants to be Jaden Smith when he, wow. when he grows up. <laughs> Since yeah. Jaden Smith dropped Blue Ocean version 19, like I have stand him like no other. Interesting. Yeah. Well, Mugabe, thank you so much for your time here on Desert Island Discs. Thank you so much for having me.
Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda.